Welcome to this podcast from the Carter Center. Uh, welcome uh, tonight to the uh, latest edition of uh, Conversations at the Carter Center. Uh, my name is Jay Hakes. I'm uh, the director of the Carter Presidential Library, and we hope that we have an entertaining uh, session for you tonight. Uh, the topic is uh, taking a new look at the Carter presidency. And I might say that uh, Jimmy Carter was the 39th president of the United States. Uh, he served from 1977 to 1981. Uh, so most of you were observing that administration. But uh, some here tonight might not have even been born when uh, Jimmy Carter was president. So what we're trying, going to try to convince you tonight is, if you fall into that category or any other category, that there were some interesting things going on at that time, and we ought to know more about them if we're going to solve the problems that we've got uh, today. We uh, will start with a panel that I will introduce in just a minute. Uh, after the panel makes some statements, uh, we're going to ask questions of ourselves. Uh, and then we will, as is customary at Conversations events, have uh, questions from the audience, and you will be welcome to uh, go up to the mic and uh, ask your questions. Now, I have to admit, the panel tonight sort of falls into this uh, policy wonkish um, category, but don't worry, because one of our panelists has actually been on the Colbert Report, <laughs> uh, the great desire of any author. And he actually, I've, I've watched it twice, and he stood up to Stephen very, very well. Uh, so our first uh, speaker tonight will be Kevin Matson, who is a professor of, um, of uh, history. In fact, he holds the Connor Study uh, uh, Chair in Contemporary History at Ohio University. Uh, he has written this book, What the Heck Are You Up To, Mr. President? Jimmy Carter, America's Malaise, and the Speech That Should Have Changed the Country. And it's a book that got considerable attention. Uh, not only did he get on the Colbert Report, but it was reviewed by the Wall Street Journal, uh, the Washington Post, and the New York Times, and all those, would, I, I would say, were very favorable. So, and he did his research here at the Carter Library. Uh, our other uh, two panelists uh, include Steve Hockman. Steve Hockman uh, is a um, uh, research assistant to President Carter. He's also liaison to the faculty at Emory University. He has worked with President Carter on all of his books, and that's a lot of books. Uh, but the one that's most interesting to us tonight is Keeping Faith, which is a memoir of President Carter. Uh, and uh, Steve uh, was intimately involved in that project, has a great historical insight on it. Um, and um, uh, yeah, I think you'll enjoy what he has to say. The third panelist is, is me. Uh, and uh, I guess that sort of puts me in the Chris Matthews position where I can both ask the questions and answer the questions. Uh, but uh, I... I um, I'm not here tonight in my capacity so much as the director of the Presidential Library. I am in my own life a, a researcher who's done research on a lot of presidents and someone who was the federal government's chief energy analyst in the Clinton administration. So I've written a book called A Declaration of Energy Independence, which goes into the energy issues of the 1970s uh, and uh, a lot of it in the Carter administration, but also the presidents before and after. Uh, there will be uh, books to be signed afterwards for those of you who are interested in doing that. Uh, it is that time of the year when you're making decisions about how to get a lot of Christmas presents real quick and not have to do a lot of shopping, so there may be some real opportunities here tonight in that respect. 
So we're going to start off, uh, you can start thinking up your questions, but we're going to start off tonight with uh, Kevin Matson, who's come from the furthest away from the uh, state of Ohio to be with us tonight. And uh, uh, Kevin, give us some of your remarks about how you did your book and, and what you think uh, people need to know about the Carter years. To, to check it out. It's, uh, it's great to see it in its new version. Um, what I thought I'd talk about in, in relationship to the speech that I wrote about is, is the question of presidential legacy. And I think that all of us are well aware of the fact that in many ways, Jimmy Carter's post-presidency has in some ways overshadowed his presidency. Um, it's often what gets first mentioned when, when dealing with his, his legacy, um, which makes it sometimes difficult to go back to the presidency. Um, my work it centers not so much on policy um, or on politics, but on the act of public rhetoric um, by looking at this speech. Uh, and in some ways, the Malay's speech, I think, is probably one of Jimmy Carter's, in terms of his presidency, one of Jimmy Carter's longest legacy. One of the ways you can see this is that um, if anyone has ever watched the episode of The Simpsons, uh, where Jimmy Carter is actually referenced, uh, they bring out a statue of Jimmy Carter for the citizens of Springfield, and on the, on the base of the statue are written the words, Malaise forever, um, which, of course, is a, a kind of humorous uh, take on Jimmy Carter's legacy and this, this term that resonates, even though it wasn't used in the speech, this term, Malaise. Um, I actually think the speech is a very important speech. Um, it's a speech in which the president did something that was very rare for presidents to do, and that is that he spoke truth to Americans about some very difficult issues, and especially about the American way of life in addressing the energy crisis. Just to highlight some of the great quotes from the speech, um, Jimmy Carter said that Americans, quote, worship self-indulgence and consumption. Americans are mired in, quote, fragmentation and self-interest, and they've lost faith in their democracy. Um, these are pretty harsh words for a president to speak to, uh, to citizens. Um, he also does, I think, a, a marvelous job in the speech of envisioning the energy crisis as something that requires a collective sense of national purpose, um, a, an act in which we transcend our self-interest and our selfishness. And I think he embraces a, a sense of civic purpose grounded in the ideas that actually energy conservation is an act of patriotism. And this is done in the context of the me decade, disco, Studio 54, um, a, a decade that's often known for its selfishness and, and self-indulgence. He's also, I think, very good at um, articulating a vision of America based upon a, a conception of national humility. Um, he's very deeply indebted to Reinhold Niebuhr, famous theologian. And I think Carter was very good at recognizing the serious damage that Vietnam and Watergate had done to the American psyche. Uh, and a, a belief that Americans had the right to be patriotic, but they also had to be realistic, and they had to inject a sense of humility into their national life. So in all of these ways, I think Jimmy Carter was very good at doing something that's fairly rare, which is that he brought ideas in dialogue with politics. And that's one of the things that I wanted to write about is, how did this speech emerge? What were the debates behind it? How did ideas actually find their way into, into a speech like this? It's a good speech, and in fact, in its immediate time that it's given, July 15th, 1979, it was also a very well-received speech, which is often overlooked by uh, Jimmy Carter's critics. Uh, he gets an 11% bounce in his, uh, in his poll numbers, and if you want to spend the time, you can go through his papers and you can read all the letters that he received from ordinary citizens. Almost all of them were, were quite favorable, as were the phone calls that were received at the White House. 
And I try to explain why the speech was, was successful, what made it potent, and, and what, what makes it important for studying his presidential legacy. But there's also the failure of the speech. Um, and this, too, is a part of the legacy. And, and I'll just make a few closing remarks about the, about the long-term ramifications from the speech. The speech, in some ways, has a huge transformation and makes a huge transformation in American politics, but not in the way that, obviously, Jimmy Carter had intended. The person who does the most to use the speech against Jimmy Carter, as you can probably imagine, is Ronald Reagan, uh, the victor of 1980. Uh, when he announces, when Ronald Reagan finally announces that he's going to run uh, for president in November of 1979, everybody knew he was going to, but he makes it official. He has this famous quote. Now, first off, Jimmy Carter never uses the term malaise in the speech, but very soon, even before the speech, it's being referred to as the malaise speech. And Ronald Reagan is one of these people who knows that the term malaise has this sort of bad connotation. And when he announces his candidacy, he says, I find no national malaise. I find nothing wrong with the American people. And that statement, I think, crystallized the difference between Ronald Reagan and Jimmy Carter. One uh, complex view uh, that actually did hold people accountable, including ordinary citizens. The other that simply celebrated the American people. And what Ronald Reagan did very successfully by using the speech in this way was that he made conservatives into the party of optimism, which was phenomenal. Um, conservatives had usually been understood to be cranky, cantankerous, against things. And now G Ronald Reagan is the beaming um, man of optimism. And this is a man who learned his politics from, after all, Barry Goldwater, um, who does not come across as optimistic or, or happy um, or like the smiley face that, that I think Ronald Reagan sometimes appeared to be. Um, Ronald Reagan did a fantastic job at drawing upon a number of neoconservative thinkers who were remaking the legacy of Vietnam. He had a very different view of Vietnam. Vietnam was a good and just war for Ronald Reagan. There were no questions to be asked about the Vietnam War, except that we just didn't do enough to actually win it, um, in his view. He was already drawing on the energy of the Christian evangelical right that was, that was arising at this time, especially with Jerry Falwell and the Moral Majority in 1979. Uh, and I think tapped into the language of a kind of redemptive form of nationalism and the idea that American, Americans are the chosen people and that there's nothing wrong with them. So in many ways, and this is where I'll close in, in, in this sh short set of comments, um, the speech, I think, in many ways is a turning point in American history. There's both what I think Jimmy Carter intended to do, which I think we need to remember better in terms of, of making a very realistic speech about the energy crisis that we, in fact, still obviously face today. Um, but there's also this other long-term legacy, which is that it, the speech did, in fact, allow for the conservative movement and Ronald Reagan in specific to position himself um, in a very, as we all know, very successful way to, to take hold of power in, in 1980. Um, I'm going to close it out there uh, and, uh, and uh, hope that we have a good discussion and, and also some good questions and answers. Is the sound all fine out there for everybody? Okay, great. Steve? Well, in 1981, I was a graduate student at the University of Virginia and also research assistant to Dumas Malone, who was biographer in residence at the university. He was doing a multi-volume biography of Thomas Jefferson, and in 1981, we finished it. Meanwhile, President Jimmy Carter finished his job on January 20th and left office. 
And he decided that the first thing he was going to do was write his presidential memoirs. He needed someone to help him do that. Now, most former presidents that write their memoirs have gathered together a team of researchers and actually usually have the memoirs ghostwritten. President Carter did not want to have a ghostwriter, and he didn't want to have a team. He wanted to do it himself. This was the first major book that he was going to write himself. But he was advised that he ought to get somebody who had done presidential biography to help him. And I ended up being that person, moving from Thomas Jefferson to Jimmy Carter, <laughs> moving from Charlottesville to Plains, Georgia. He did not want to do a history of his administration, but he said, a highly personal report of my own experiences. Now, even if you don't do the whole story of your administration, it is still a very complicated topic to organize. When you go to the Jimmy Carter Museum and go to see a day in the life of a president, you will see the numerous things that a president has to do in one day, the very important topics that he deals with that are domestic and global. How do you organize this? It isn't easy. But he decided that he wanted to emphasize foreign policy issues. There's a good reason for a president doing that because he was most personally involved with the control of foreign policy. You can make a lot more calls if you're, the for if you're doing foreign policy than domestic. Not that he didn't spend a lot of time on domestic, but there he was frustrated by having to work with many other people in Congress and uh, in the other parts of the government. So for that book, uh, the, it was published in 1982, Keeping Faith, Memoirs of a President. Now, what do I want to say about this book as I revisit it 27 years later? Well, I kept working for President Carter because he asked me to go up to Atlanta and Emory with him. He had been appointed uh, Emory University Distinguished Professor, and he decided in 1982 to launch the Carter Center. And as we uh, launched the Carter Center, which he intended to work on through it, improving the human conditions throughout the world, I saw that there were certain parts of the world that were most welcoming to him. The nations of the Middle East were very interested in working with him on peace. In Latin America, his reputation was high because of the Panama Canal Treaties and his efforts on behalf of human rights. In China, he was considered a wise statesman because of the normalization of relations with China. And all these stories had been told in Keeping Faith. But I also discovered a story that had been neglected his relationship with Sub-Saharan Africa, where I found he also was greatly respected. It turned out that in April 1978, 
he became the first American president to pay a state visit to any sub-Saharan African nation, going at that time to Liberia and Nigeria. He made improving relations with black Africa one of his highest priorities. He appointed Andrew Young and Donald McHenry to be the ambassadors to the UN, and they were given the job to focus on Africa. Now, he also had other things that he dealt with. Cold War competition in Africa, and also conflict over minority rule. Why didn't he tell this story? It, primarily because it's a very hard story to write up in a chapter. It doesn't just flow. There are lots of different things going on. But I really wish we would have told that story. And certainly since then, he's continued to work in uh, sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, and I'm sure will for the rest of his life. The next neglected story I wish we had told was the story of Paul Volcker's appointment as Federal Reserve Chairman in 1979. This was one of the most important appointments that he ever made. He gave Volcker the go-ahead to be independent and to bring down inflation. At the time, there was very bad inflation. Now, this had not started with President Carter. There were inflation problems during the Nixon administration, during the Ford administration. This was something President Carter inherited but it, it was a very serious problem. Volcker, in order to deal with it, raised interest rates. And this was a very difficult political issue for President Carter, but he had the courage to let Volcker do it. Why didn't we tell the story of this great appointment? Primarily, I think, because when we were writing the book, the country was in a recession, which to some extent had been brought on by Volcker's monetary policy and by raising interest rates. But by doing this, very soon the recession ended and inflation was brought down and interest rates came down. So President Reagan was the beneficiary of President Carter's appointment. And I think very few people remember that it was Carter who suffered uh, at the time of the election from high interest rates. The American people suffered and he paid for it. But he was the one that made this tough choice. This is something that he should receive the credit for. There is a book by a man named Carl Biven on Jimmy Carter's economy that if you want to learn more about this, you should read. Another story that I think deserved more attention was the rise of religious fundamentalism as a major issue of both domestic and international politics. Now, these stories are not entirely neglected in the book, but I don't think that at the time we recognized how long they would be with us. President Carter was an evangelical Christian himself. He is. And he came to office with much support from other evangelicals. However, he lost the most conservative evangelicals during his administration, and that's a story that needs to be told. One man that is working on this, he hasn't, uh, has published some on it, and I hope more, Randall Balmer. 
who's a historian of American religion. Now, on the Islamic conservatism, I have to say that virtually no one in the West, Europe, the United States, really understood it at the time. And President Carter was not advised by Islamic allies what was going on either. I'm not sure if they understood it. So that's the subject now for, uh, in 2009 that I wish we had dealt with, but I have to admit we didn't know enough to deal with it. But it's a subject I would like to see studied more. Right. Thanks, Steve. Um, all of us are sort of looking at the same thing. We're looking at the Carter years, but everybody has a little different slant to it. Uh, I uh, defer to uh, Kevin's view of uh, disco dancing in that area because I don't have a strong opinion on the subject, and he's a cultural historian. I tend to be a little bit more of an of a economic determinist in a way. But I would, I, I would say that we all agree that you need to visit the Jimmy Carter New Museum uh, it is spectacular in terms of its high technology. It's very family friendly. And now for the first time, it includes the post-presidency. So you can uh, see what the Carter Center is doing all over the world. So you can uh, refresh your memory, get, uh, get new perspectives on the Carter presidency, but then have this whole new world ahead of you, track how the center is doing, eliminating guinea worm and all these great things going on. But my slant on this is from the field of energy, which is something I spend a lot of time thinking about but it has broader uh, ramifications. My view is that the ideological debates that poison the political debate today not only make it harder to resolve tough policy issues, but they've totally distorted the policy of the 1970s because everybody is not looking at what happened in the 1970s. They're looking for facts that support their ideological point of view. And so I decided I wanted to go back to the 1970s and find out in a period that had two periods of great gas lines, the original Arab oil embargo, another period of gas lines in 1979. How did the United States respond to that energy crisis? And I decided I wanted to find out what really happened, not what people said happened. So I went through all the Nixon archives. I think I've listened to every tape where Richard Nixon talks about energy. I've gone through all the energy documents of the Ford administration, the documents of the Carter administration. Uh, not quite as intense on some of the other presidents. I've gone back over the energy data. And I found that both of the major myths about that period are not true. Uh, one myth comes from the right, and it says that Jimmy Carter was, uh, created this overregulation of American uh, business through the creation of the Energy Department. And this is uh, extremely easy to dismiss because the wage and price controls that were in force in the 70s were put in place by Richard Nixon, not by Jimmy Carter. And Jimmy Carter's role uh, he was a little slow in dismantling the regulatory apparatus, but he actually uh, was the one that decontrolled crude oil prices. So that whole sort of thing that comes from the right is just based on a, a total sort of mythology. The myth that comes uh, uh, from the left and to some extent from the right uh, is a little bit harder to dismiss, but I think is also fundamentally flawed. And that is that Jimmy Carter was a lone voice in the wilderness and if we'd only listened to Jimmy Carter, uh, we wouldn't have the energy problems today that we have uh, if only people had listened to him. And the implication of that, which is wrong, is that Carter didn't accomplish anything. And I think when you go back and look at the facts and the data, uh, you'll see it's different. Now, 
both sides had uh, an incentive to perpetuate this myth. Uh, many Carter supporters wanted to pretend he was the first president to deal with the issue. So they didn't give much account to the fact that Ford and Nixon uh, had actually done a few good things. They did some bad things, but they did a lot of good things. Um, and, uh, but the Ford people are also contributed to this myth because they, for instance, created the auto efficiency standards, uh, which are considered by many conservatives to be a great intrusion in the economy. And yet, yet if you, uh, there was an interview last year with Frank Zarb, who was President Ford's major energy advisor and knew better than anybody else what the Ford administration was doing, and he said they'd only put in uh, efficiency labeling. They hadn't put in any regulation. Well, this was just patently false. But I think he really believed it when he said it. But the reason he believed it was in the Reagan years, all the Ford people bought into the Reagan uh, uh, ideology, and they'd be kind of embarrassed that they had favored these things that sounded a little bit like Democrats were supposed to do. So Nixon puts in the 55-mile-an-hour speed limit. Under Ford, we passed the uh, mileage efficiency standard laws. Uh, we passed the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, which today does serve to buffer us uh, against world oil interruptions. Uh, and both Nixon and Ford start putting a lot more money into research on renewable energy and, and alternative fuels. So Carter doesn't get a blank slate. When Carter comes in, he, he actually gets two major energy packages passed in 1978 and 1980. So somebody in Congress was listening. And in fact, many of them had been working on these laws even before he became president. Two substantive packages. And uh, the things that I think made the difference right away uh, were things like insulating housing, big tax credits. And so all of a sudden, your housing starts getting better insulated. The use of heating oil in the Northeast goes down. Carter pretty much oil orders the electricity companies to quit burning oil to generate electricity. Uh, he puts in all sorts of tax credits. Uh, and uh, he, he preaches conservation. And he has tax incentives for, for conservation. He also, interestingly enough, uh, opposed uh, ceasing construction on new nuclear plants after Three Mile Island. And these new nuclear plants allowed us to back off of oil. Again, the nuclear industry today frequently criticizes Jimmy Carter for not being pro-nuclear enough. The man is a nuclear engineer. He developed nuclear technology under RICO. So there's a, there's a lot of mythology out there. Now, when you look at the data, and, and, and this is where I have to admit I was surprised. I used to be the head of the federal agency that collects energy data. And, and I had to admit, I, I went back and I was looking at this on the monthly data, and, and, and I, I, I calculated, I said, is this true? But the official statistics of the United States say that from 1977 to 1982, our oil imports dropped in half, from 8.6 million barrels a day to 4.3 million barrels a day, 50% cut. And they pretty much stayed at that low level till 1985. And uh, then they started creeping up again. But they never got back up to 1977 levels till the second term of Bill Clinton. Okay. So 99% of Americans believe we never did anything about this and we just dithered about it. But if you're looking, if we had a line graph here, the line does not go straight up on oil imports. It shows a very steep drop and then it goes back up. And part of the problem that historians and other people have is there's a time lag between policy and the effects of the policy. Uh, George Shultz, uh, one of the great 
Republican cabinet members over the years pointed that out as an economist. So the fact that oil imports went down in 88 was probably as much due to what Nixon and Ford did as what Carter was able to do in his first year. Just as when they were going down under Reagan, that Carter would get a lot of credit for that. But we don't think in those terms. We don't think in terms of a policy taking time. And I will close with a pithy statement of uh, Walter Mondale. And whenever Walter Mondale, uh, President Carter's uh, vice president, makes a pithy statement, pay attention. And he, 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 I can hear him now. He's actually said it in this room at, at one of his appearances here. He says, we uh, talked a lot about short-term pain for long-term gain. In other words, we were going to tackle the energy problem. We were going to tackle health care reform. And it might be rough for a couple of years to transition to this new way of doing things, but in a couple of years it would make things better. Then he added at the end, he said, and boy, did we stress that long-term pain. <laughs> so this creates the dilemma for politicians. They are up for re-election either every two, every four, or every six years. And as, as George Schultz, again, a great Republican economist and, and government official said, what's the politician to do when he's told by an economist it's going to take four or five years for this policy to bear results and he's up for re-election, he or she is up for election in two years. And that is the dilemma of our political system. We have had two presidents who told the American people that energy prices had to get higher if we were going to stimulate conservation and wise energy policy, Gerald Ford and Jimmy Carter. Neither one of them got reelected. And that is the dilemma that we face for every public official and for our society is whether we have the strength to tackle tough issues and endure a little bit of uh, short-term pain for, uh, for that long-term gain that we're trying to give for ourselves and our children and our grandchildren. Okay, I will revert back to my moderator role, uh, and I have questions and others may have questions, but I'm going to start with uh, Kevin. And Kevin, your book got a tremendous reaction. Uh, I mean, there are not many authors that uh, uh, get the press exposure that you got, and this is not your first book. But uh, I wasn't as aware of your earlier books. Now, have you, are you now a better writer, or you have a better publicist, or <laughs> is this topic just so sexy that you wrote a bad book and people uh, decide they wanted to read it? <laughs> um, wow, that's a difficult question, or a set of questions to answer. Um, I think that there, you know, I, to a certain extent, there, and you have some of the books there next to you, there, there have been a number of books written on Jimmy Carter. There's not been as many as there have been written on other presidents. Um, and I think there was a feeling that there weren't as many books out there that were probably favorable or at least more favorable towards Jimmy Carter you know, than there were um, perhaps negative assessments of him. I think this the, the reason that I did the speech itself is because there is this very strange counterintuitive thing. Most historians who study the speech will gloss it and they will say, Jimmy Carter was blaming the American people and he was trying to essentially take the blame off his own shoulders and toss it onto the citizens. And, um, and, and this, he was sermonizing, he was cantankerous, he was, he, and he was doing everything bad. And the first thing that prompted me to want to write this book, and perhaps this is the sort of um, conundrum that I think can, can sometimes make for, for an author to gain interest in writing about these things, is that, in fact, the speech was profoundly successful. 
um, that he bumped up in the polls, that he got a very favorable response on the part of the American people. It just is very counterintuitive. If you read the speech and, and, and listen to the way he talks about the American people, um, you would think, good Lord, how would this have ever pulled itself off? He's, he's condemning the American way of life. Why would people respond to that favorably? And, and when I, the, the first thing that prompted me to write this was that I had assigned the speech to undergraduates um, at, where I teach. And, and they themselves came to the speech and said, I want a president that talks like this. We don't have enough presidents that talk like this, which kind of took me aback because I expected them to, to react negatively to it. So, I mean, I think it's the, I mean, I think that what has driven some interest perhaps in the book is that there is this sort of conundrum or a counterintuitive element that here is the speech that, that many people believe doomed Jimmy Carter. And yet in the immediate context in which it was given, it was it gained actually a very favorable response. Um, so perhaps it's the it's the counterintuitive or, or the strange nature of taking what is usually treated as a very negative thing and trying to resuscitate it um, that maybe gained some of the interest in, in the book, plus a good publicity agent, I suppose. Okay. May I say something sure. about that? I, I think one of the reasons why it's been a very popular book is because it, it can be admired by people who don't like President Carter and people who do. What he did was very carefully go through the evidence. He actually uh, followed chronology. He read the materials. He read the speeches. He read the uh, information uh, that was sent, communications within the White House. Uh, he interviewed people. He researched it, and it is a true story. But it's a true story both of success and of failure, because then President Carter, as he said, right after, two days after he gave this tremendously successful speech, he asked for the resignation of all members of his cabinet. And that was just a very poor way to approach it. Uh, we could talk more about that. So people who don't like President Carter say, oh, look how he blew it. But people who do uh, appreciate the fact that this speech was not understood. It's a very significant speech, and it made a very great point. And uh, uh, Kevin is sympathetic to President Carter in it. Uh, let me just say that before I went to work for President Carter, I worked for Dumas Malone, who was writing a multi-volume biography of Jefferson, he gave me the advice that if you write proper history, you follow chronology, you see when a person uh, learned something and when he acted, you, you find out also uh, what were the choices that that person had uh, that he could make. And you read the documents. You go through not only, if possible, the uh, document of the person who you're working on, Thomas Jefferson, for instance, but his opponents, like a Alexander Hamilton. You read all of that and put it together. Well, that's something that both uh, Kevin and Jay Hakes did. They read the evidence. They didn't just uh, take what was uh, received knowledge, but they, they worked it through. And, they both wrote very interesting books. Thank you. Uh, 
Yeah, I, I agree with Steve. I think one of the things I liked about Kevin's book was at the end of the book, he actually prints the, the text of the speech. So he's, he's sort of made his argument about the speech, but he treats you like an adult and says, here, you read it yourself and, and make up your own, own mind. Let me ask Kevin one more question before I move to Steve. Um, you did a lot of your research right here in Atlanta at the uh, Carter uh, Presidential Archives, uh, which I, for those of you who aren't familiar, it's 27 million pieces of paper and a lot of other things. Well, what it's like, is it like coming here and what kind of resources are available to people who are professional historians or other people who want to work in archives? Uh, it's, I mean, and I'm not just saying this because I'm sitting here. It's, it's a great place to work. Um, I had a wonderful experience here. Um, the, the, there's just so much in terms of the documentation. In some ways, you know, we were fortunate enough that Jimmy Carter was a, a president who governed by memo. Um, he, you know, ha asked people to write up memos for him on practically anything that he was going to have to deal with. And he would often annotate these in his kind of peculiar um, handwriting style. Uh, and you can just dig into these things. Um, numerous finding aids, numerous uh, reference lists that are just fantastic. It's a great place to work. Um, and, and it's exciting, you know, again, I think especially for young people who are considering, you know, becoming perhaps historians themselves, there is really something um, fascinating and wonderful to be able to actually go back to the documents written at the time. To be able, I mean, I, when I remember when I first started seeing copies of the, of the so-called Malay's speech and just watching it go through um, the, the renditions that it went through and people editing and trying to figure out who's saying what and why are people whacking things out. Um, for instance, it opens up with a lot of these quotes that supposedly Carter had gotten out of his domestic summit. And yet, you know, if you go to the speech, you can see him editing the quotes. So many of the quotes are not really, in fact, what's said to him, but they're more about what he wants to do in order to frame the speech the way he wants to. Um, it's a great place to work, and it's, it's, it, was, it, was a, it was a pleasure. And it was, it was actually nice to just come back here and, and knowing that I didn't have to dig through um, piles of boxes and, and lots of paper. It was almost a kind of relief uh, as well because it, there's just so much here that, that you can spend so much time on. Okay, uh, let me move to Steve here. Um, I think it's fair to say that a lot of people don't know that President Carter kept a rather extensive personal diary while he was president. So, uh, Steve, do such diaries exist? Have historians been able to see them? What are the plans for these diaries if they exist? Well, President Carter, when he was in office, did not sit down and write a diary. He would tape it. He had a little tape recorder handheld. And most nights, he would uh, sit with the tape recorder and make comments on what had happened during the day. And some days, he would do it at breaks during the day. And then other times, he would catch up after two or three days if it, if it had really been busy. These tapes then would be put in the outbox, and his secretary, Susan Clough, would type up the transcript. And it was just put in a notebook, and President Carter never looked at them until he came back in 1981 from Washington. And this was to be the guide for him for writing his memoirs. So he went through these diaries. There were 18 volumes. He says there are about 5,000 pages. I haven't counted them, but I'm sure he's right. And this was typed up. He had never corrected. There were typos. Uh, 
Sometimes Susan didn't get the spelling of a name right, things like that. But uh, there it was, thousands of pages, which he used to write Keeping Faith. These uh, volumes were then locked in a vault down at the Jimmy Carter Library. And uh, he and I are the only ones that have access uh, to, the, to the diary. Uh, I had worked with the diary as his research assistant. And I had to have uh, uh, clearance by the government uh, before I could get into the diary because there were some confidential things in the diary. Um, so I couldn't get into the diary immediately when I started working for him. These have been sitting there. At times, we, we use them. Uh, when he's uh, interviewed on a topic uh, involving his presidency, sometimes he'll go and look at what the diary says, or I will go in and get it for him. Uh, and there have been a couple of cases where we have had exhibits at the Jimmy Carter Library uh, where we have uh, put together uh, excerpts from the diary. He has decided it is time now to publish the diary. And he is at work right now on editing the diary. He wants to have a one-volume uh, abridgment of the diary where he picks out the most important things, but uh, without censoring them. And that will come out probably within the year. Right now, we're aiming at next fall. Then once that is published, at a later time, fairly soon, the rest of the diary will be uh, open to researchers. Uh, it may be done on a, a computerized version that'll be uh, available on the internet because uh, what is on the typescript actually does need little corrections. As I said, there were typos, misspellings, etc., And they hadn't been checked by President Carter at the time. But this is going to be an exciting event for American historians and I hope for the general public. Uh, are you going to learn that there was some great conspiracy that's been hidden? No, because Jimmy Carter was always a very open president. He, uh, he wasn't secretive, but there are many personal items, stories that are in the diary that have never been told before. And of course, his impressions of what was going on. Sometimes his great happiness, sometimes his, his unhappiness. This will be in the diary. So this will be a very important event when uh, it comes out. Are you eager to get your hands on it, Kevin? I would love to, <laughs> yeah. Um, you, you, have, you do have, it does, you have excerpts in Keeping Faith where he'll go back and, and reprint parts of the diary. But it, it's, it's, uh, it would be enormously helpful for, for any historian trying to understand his presidency. Yeah. Yes. I, I think, uh, you know, I'm a great fan of the Reagan diaries. I, I, I would recommend to everybody uh, to read them who's interested in the history of the 80s. And, uh, these are, are more extensive, so uh, I think for the general public and historians, we're talking about some uh, pretty major new information coming out. Do either of you have any ideas of books you think people ought to be writing either now or um, when these diaries come out that haven't been written yet? I mean, Steve sort of suggested some topics that need to be addressed some more, but uh, either one of you who'd, who'd 
want to sort of pipe in on that or something that hasn't been looked at enough to your uh, satisfaction? I would echo what Steve had said about the, the rise of religious fundamentalism, most particularly domestically, how there seemed to be a, a lack of awareness of, of the ways in which the evangelical right was congealing uh, during the last years of the presidency. Um, there were people trying to make Carter aware that this was happening, and Carter, of course, had a famous meeting with Jerry Falwell that was just uh, an utter failure uh, in communication, as you can probably imagine. But it does seem to me to be that here you have a, uh, you know, a Baptist president who will be defeated in, in 1980, it's not as big of a deal as it will be in 1984 for Walter Mondale, but he will be defeated in part because the evangelical right is mobilizing. And it would be interesting to see a little bit more about you know, what's going on within the White House uh, in terms of are people coming to terms with this, um, or if not, why not? Because it is starting to become a potent force in 79 and 80. So that, that's one thing that I could uh, imagine making for a really exciting book. Well, there are domestic issues that I think uh, should be studied. Actually, health care is one of them. Uh, President Carter actually believes that if uh, he had had the support of Ted Kennedy, that we would have had a health care uh, law passed. Now, Ted Kennedy believed that if he had had the support of President Carter, he might have gotten one passed. This is something that needs to be studied by scholars. Why didn't it happen? Why couldn't they come together? Why has it been so long that we haven't been able to pull it off? That's something I'd really like to see done. I, I think we're looking forward to uh, Leo Rubuffo's book when it comes out. We'll probably deal to some extent with this health care uh, issue. And uh, as Steve suggested early, Randy Balmer, I think, is looking at some of the uh, the issues that Kevin referred to. I just kind of picked a few books off my shelf that had come off recently. I think it's interesting to see what's been written about uh, President Carter in the last few years. Here's one called The Real Jimmy Carter. It's pretty heavily promoted, written by Stephen Hayward and published by the American Enterprise Institute. Some of you may be familiar with that. Uh, the subtitle is How Our Worst Ex-President Undermines American Foreign Policy, Coddles Dictators, and Created the Party of Clinton and Kerry. Uh, and, subtle. Uh, <laughs> and uh, he has a chapter called President Malays and uh, uh, a subheading called What's Wrong with America and refers to the same speech that Kevin wrote a book about as the most dubious piece of presidential rhetoric in American history. Uh, the book is actually not as bad as the title. Uh, there, there's some issues in here that, that you know, are, are worth discussing. But on the other end of the spectrum is a book called Recarving Mount Rushmore, Ranking the Presidents on Peace, Prosperity, and Liberty. It's a, by, by a, name, a guy named Ivan Elan, and he basically is with a, a think tank that worked closely with the libertarian movement, and there's a blurb from uh, Ron Paul. Uh, he ranks Jimmy Carter as the sixth best president of all time and the best president since World War II, just a point or two ahead of Dwight Eisenhower. Now, the general public is probably not going to agree with a lot of this book. Lincoln ranks as one of his worst presidents because he introduced martial law during the Civil War. He doesn't like martial law. He's a libertarian, after all. But he, 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 the, it, the logic he goes through is very interesting. It's that Carter brought peace to pa Panama through the Panama Canal Treaties, 
Therefore, we didn't have to send troops to uh, Panama to, to keep the canal, and libertarians don't like foreign military intervention. So if you want to sort of take a different look at uh, a thought process that's different from conventional wisdom, this is another book that's sitting out there. Another book that's a, a little bit uh, obscure uh, is written by uh, President Carter's former ambassador to uh, Italy, uh, Richard Gardner, uh, on the front lines in the Cold War. The book I would like to see is, is, the, is the efforts to undermine communism through promoting human rights in Eastern Europe and, and Russia. Um, I think there's a great, and, and also encountering the uh, military threat by the Russians through diplomacy with the Europeans, which is cited in this book. So here, this is called Mission Italy. And then a, a recent one called Profit from Plains, Jimmy Carter and His Legacy, published by the University of Georgia Press, kind of a compendium of President Carter's uh, life. And then uh, uh, Adam Clymer wrote a book called, uh, uh, is it Digging the Big Ditch? And it's about the Panama Canal Treaty. And he points out how uh, the Canal Treaty led to, directly to the defeat of a large members of the United States Senate. And, and I think that contributed to the success of Reagan because when Reagan took over, not only did he win that election, but the people who had voted for things like the Panama Canal were wiped out in that Senate race. And, and that changed the complexion almost as much as the result of the presidential race. So there, there's a lot of stuff out there to read and there's a lot more that's going to be uh, uh, written in the future. Uh, let me ask both of you, um, the term team of rivals has uh, come up a lot recently because of Doris Kern Goodwin's book on the Lincoln administration and how he brought these strong people into his uh, uh, circle and tolerated their differences and that made for stronger government and uh, President Obama has uh, read that book and, and cited it favorably. Uh, did President Carter have a team of rivals? Well, you know, he's not the only one there in the White House. There's a lot of other people. Are, are, is there jockeying for position that goes on within the White House, and how did that work in the Carter years? Oh, yeah, there's jockeying for position. In fact, the story of the speech is in large part a, um, a story of a screaming match um, behind closed doors um, with people taking very fierce sides on whether or not Jimmy Carter should take what is what appears to be a very risky speech. Um, on one side, are, uh, mostly by himself, is Pat Cadell arguing that the speech should be made, it should be a tough speech, and it should address the civic crisis. On the other side um, are Stuart Eisenstadt and Walter Mondale, who believe it would be disastrous for Carter to make the speech. And in fact, during the course of some of these discussions, um, they would run up to eight, nine hours, people would be screaming at one another using very foul language that's not uh, appropriate to be used <laughs> in front of an audience like this. And um, it is tough. And, and Carter, uh, you know, managed to, I think, remain convinced of his own viewpoints uh, that he thought were right, but he was also willing to expose himself to a lot of different viewpoints. Whether or not that was, was, was helpful for him or, or made him a successful president, I, I'm not sure, but there was certainly a lot of fighting going on behind the closed doors. And it's a fascinating story when you, when you, you know, kind of open up the, the doors to the White House, look inside and see people just almost coming to fisticuffs about this sort of thing. President Carter, uh is perfectly willing to have people with different ideas work for him. He likes that, in fact. Uh, he, he thinks it's good to have different opinions, to, for him to listen to them, and then for him to make the decision. And uh, the 
most famous uh, competition was between uh, Cyrus Vance, President Carter's Secretary of State, and Zvignu Brzezinski, his national security advisor. They were, they had different opinions. Now, President Carter always said that uh, they agreed most of the time, and that probably is true. But on certain issues, uh, Brzezinski was far more hardline than Vance. And for President Carter and his decision-making, he felt this was good. But it became a topic that the press, the media, ran with. And they always were seeing divisions a, in his uh, among his advisors. They were publicizing this. And so to the media, it seemed a weakness of President Carter. To him, it was not. Uh, and he made the decisions. But uh, that isn't how it was perceived. Yeah, my example uh, that I deal with a little bit in my book is um, President Carter made a very fateful decision in the spring of uh, uh, 1979 that he was going to decontrol crude oil prices and his feeling was that this was necessary if we were going to address the oil problem. Most of his advisors disagreed with him and one of his advisors was uh, a fellow named Alfred Kahn and uh, if you were to make a list of the economic theorists of the 20th century who pushed the idea of uh, uh, economic deregulation he would be at the, in the top five or six. And so you would assume that when Carter was contemplating decontrolling oil prices that Kahn would have been one of the people urging him to do it. But at that time, Kahn uh, was the inflation czar and his job was to bring down inflation. And he felt that if oil prices went up that it would lead to a cost of living increase the unions would then use that as an, as an excuse to push for higher uh, uh, wage settlements, and this would set off a spiral of inflation. The reason um, I, I asked this question and I'm now kind of answering it is these are important uh, not just because of the personalities involved and people are fighting, it's that these are tough issues. You know, the issue of, uh, of, of whether to deregulate oil prices at that point in time there are good arguments on both sides, you know. And um, I was at a conference one time at the uh, uh, LBJ library, and uh, one of his daughters, Lucy, was talking about why they were trying to take the position of opening up all the records, even in some cases where it not, might not be that favorable to uh, President Johnson. And she said, you know, these problems are so hard that if we don't go back and look at what went right and what went wrong, we're never going to solve them. And, and so I, I would urge everybody to try to look at books or to do research where you, you go back and say, well, you know, they were having an argument that had some substance on both sides and, and they were difficult to resolve. Now, my most important question is, what's it like to be on the Colbert Report? Do you just go out there cold and, and, and wing it or do they give you a script or, or how does that work? Um. <laughs> The, it's, the, the oddest experience is when you are backstage in the green room and you, you meet Stephen Colbert and he talks about himself in the third person. Um, 
And he says, you know, my character is going to be willfully ignorant. He will not have read your book. He would never read your book, um, but he's going to berate you uh, uh, or something to that effect. And it's odd to hear someone talk about themselves in the third person. And um, I've been on Fox News uh, uh, before, and and there I was being um, kind of yelled at by a very thick-necked um, football player-looking guy that I can't remember his name was. He was sitting in for um, uh, Sean Hannity. And, uh, and, and, you know, in that sort of situation, you're, you, you know what you're dealing with. You know where the guy's coming from and that he's going to criticize you and that he thinks you're a liberal and so therefore you're a pansy. It's stranger to have that being thrown at you when you know that the person isn't really necessarily a believer in that. So it's a very strange, I, I've described it as being a kind of postmodern experience where you're not really sure what's reality and what's going on um, while, while you're doing it. Uh, it's also, I think, you know, for a lot of people, uh, sense of things. You know, there's a, there's a new generation coming of age now that, that they're getting a lot of their news from, from John Stewart, from Stephen Colbert. Uh, it's a very, very different and and sometimes I think bizarre um, uh, sort of uh, new atmosphere for, for authors to, to try to work with. Uh, let me ask my final question and then we'll move to questions from the audience. Uh, Steve Hockman is famous as a fact checker and uh, you know, if you're writing a dissertation or you're writing a book or uh, you're doing a new museum, uh, which we just did, uh, you, you have the nightmares of, of making uh, an error uh, that's all of a sudden there in print, uh, we, uh, you can still kind of correct them. But Steve has helped us a lot in the, in the museum, go, you know, thousands of facts uh, and spellings of names and things like that. Uh, to people out there who are budding writers or, or uh, whatever, what, what are your techniques of making sure that everything's accurate when it's actually published? Well, first, you never... Uh, are, if you write a book, you're never going to have everything perfect. You do have to accept that. But you want to try as hard as you can to get everything right. Uh, and it depends on taking good notes as you're writing your own book. Make sure you get your notes right. And then the ideal scholar goes back and checks his footnotes. We actually, when I was working for Dumas Malone, did that. We would take that book out after the book was ready, uh, his book was ready. We would check his footnotes and make sure that we were quoting things accurately. That takes a lot of time, but that's one way to do it. All right, let's say, though, that you haven't taken all these notes on note cards and that you, and in this case, for the museum, uh, Somebody else has written this, and you're trying to check to make sure. Well, I've got to say, I do start with Google. That's, uh, uh, it's not the end. It can't be. But uh, it will take me to certain places. Wikipedia, uh, I go to that. I go to the encyclopedias. But then I do go to the library, and, uh, and I will check uh, books and I get interns to, at the Carter Center who are excellent uh, to help me out and to research these things. And I just try to keep, keep at it and see if I can find a source. It just takes a lot of time. And sometimes you can spend uh, days and not get the answer. Very frustrating. 
but at least you made an effort. Right, well, uh, we have a very well-educated audience out there. I see uh, people that I know who uh, follow current events and historical events very closely. I know that some of our visitors have actually come from long, people who have ties with the Carter Center have come here from far away. So uh, if you would follow the example we have over here, and you can start lining up at the two microphones, and uh, we have approximately uh, 25 minutes to, uh, to answer questions. So, yes. Well, thank you. Thank you. I don't think, is this turned on? There we go. So I wanted to first make a very brief announcement that's related to the Carter Center, I think, in the sense that uh, in Anna Balter, uh, people say they get the news from The Daily Show, uh, Anna Balter has been connected uh, with the Carter Center only in the sense that she was a beneficiary of his book, uh, Peace, Not Apartheid. She's an American Jewish uh, uh, worker trying to bring out greater information about situation on the ground in the West Bank and Gaza. And she's going to be on the John Stewart Show tonight. So that's the announcement if you want to tune into that. But my question was, I was reading a book just the other day um, where they referred to, quote unquote, the Carter Doctrine with respect to energy, energy independence, and particularly in, in the context of protecting American rights to Middle East oil. And I, wish, I just wanted to know if you could clarify what the Carter Doctrine was, if there was one, because this author referred to it, and I just frankly couldn't remember what it was. Thank you. Well, I, Steve can correct me. I, I think usually what's referred to as the Carter Doctrine is something that occurred after the Russian invasion of Afghanistan. Um, at the time, this was viewed as not only uh, something that affected Afghanistan, but it was thought that um, uh, the Russians really wanted a, a port where they had, had access to oil, and um, that therefore they might not stop at Afghanistan. And at the time, we uh, had no military operation that was focused on the Middle East. And President Carter, in a speech that I believe was in uh, January of 1979, yeah, January of 79, announced this, this doctrine that we would not tolerate uh, Russian incursion into this area. And he's recently, in an interview that I saw, and, and I don't know if this was public before, but apparently there were some very strong threats made to the Soviets behind the scenes involving the mention of nuclear weapons. Uh, to enforce this. And out of this, uh, a command for the, um, uh, what's the modern central command, which it was run out of Tampa and has basically run the wars in, in Iraq and Afghanistan, was created out, out of this. And the idea was that, and this was in the Cold War, remember, that we would not allow the Soviet Union to move in to uh, commandeer the oil resources there. My own view on this is that there was some confusion created by the CIA. The CIA had prepared uh, briefing documents for President Carter that said that the Soviet Union was running out of oil and by uh, 1985 would be importing oil. So it was the view within the CIA and therefore the view within the administration that the Soviets needed to uh, expand outside their own borders because of this shortage. This was a case where the CIA was wrong. Uh, that was not the case. I don't think it was very good work on their part. Um, 
maybe this is one of the reasons they like to keep their briefings to the president secret and not to classify them. Uh, I, that's another book I would like to see, is to have all the briefings of the president declassified so we could evaluate the quality of the advice of the president. So I, I, is, I think that's what you were talking about. It, it's, it's the doctrine that grew out of the Afghan invasion. It's, yes, that, that's it. Okay. Doc Padgett, organizer of the Peanut Brigade. Well, thank you, Jay. Steve, I have waited for years to find an answer to this question, and I think you can possibly answer it for me. Uh, in, question, in asking questions of people, I ask them what person or personality, past or present, that Jimmy Carter reminds them of more than anyone else, hoping that they will say Thomas Jefferson. <laughs> Usually the answer that they give me is uh, Jimmy Carter's unique. There's no one else that would compare him to. So if you were going to make a comparison between the two, Jimmy Carter and Thomas Jefferson, what would you say? <laughs> oh, there is a lot of similarity. In fact, I even taught a course on this one. Wow. It was a, a, a short course. I uh, gave a couple <laughs> of lectures <laughs> to Elder Hostel. If you know uh, the Elder Hostel oh, program. Okay. Uh, that would the, be me. Yes. And what do, uh, so those only last a week. Not because there wasn't a lot to say. But uh, with both of them are products of the rural South. Uh, they both uh, grew up uh, with, I think, a great deal of self-confidence because of uh, their ability to do all sorts of things on their farms or plantations. They had to be independent. You couldn't just go to town and get people to come out and do the jobs you needed done. Uh, so also, although people not, may not think this is true, both Jefferson and President Carter uh, were used to dealing with all kinds of people. Uh, they, uh, they weren't uh, set off from uh, the ordinary uh, folk. Uh, they, uh, they understand the people. And, and Jefferson was a Democrat, the first great American Democrat, as uh, Jimmy Carter uh, was a Democrat. Uh, both are interested in almost everything. Uh, Jefferson was the Renaissance man. Uh, art, uh, painting, uh, uh, music, uh, but he could talk about horses, he could talk about uh, history, he could talk about science. Jimmy Carter is very much the same kind of person. He's interested in everything. And if you go to the Jimmy Carter Museum, you will see his paintings. Uh, that's something I, I expect not many people know, that he has been uh, a prolific painter in recent years. And a number of those are uh, can be seen at the museum. He writes poetry. There's a book of poetry. He's written a novel. And, of course, many uh, uh, nonfiction books. Uh, but he loves to fish. Whatever you t can think of, uh, President Carter can be interested in. It. Uh, uh, both uh, people are uh, concerned about education, about uh, human rights, uh, many things in common, yes. Well, 
Okay, I remembered about four of those shows. You might have to meet me afterwards so I can write the rest <laughs> of them down. But thank you very much. That's exactly what I was thinking that, uh, I would, uh, between the two men. Thank you. Thanks. Thank that. My name's Bill Bryan, and uh, I'm a Goldwater conservative, and my dad is an FDR uh, liberal, uh, and uh, he thinks he raised a snake. And, uh, and one way to get my dad very angry, which I, I don't need to, I don't want to see him stroke out, is I've asked him, Dad, one time, uh, could you tell me one good thing that Jimmy Carter did during his presidency? He had good intentions. He's honest. He'd make a good preacher. And my dad just started turning purple and said, essentially, he was a good person and he had good intentions. And uh, don't ever ask me that question again. Or, uh, but uh, could you name one positive thing? Because I can only think of one positive thing, and that is that he uh, Uh, the, uh, I'm having a senior moment. Uh, he forgave the uh, uh, draft evaders, uh, uh, the Vietnam draft evaders. I thought that was a good thing. I, I was in the military myself, and so was my dad. But other than that, I, I, I feel like I'm in Alice in Wonderland because you said he deregulated oil. But I remember when Reagan got into office, that was natural gas, oil. And uh, Carter made a bunch of statements saying that the uh, average person would be hurt by it, that the price of oil, natural gas would go up dramatically. And uh, could you name one positive thing? Because I will go and Google and find out who did deregulate it because uh, I could not stand Nixon. Yeah, I, I can maybe uh, start with that and add a few things. Uh, basically, the... Um, law that I mentioned earlier that was passed in 1975 created the legal authority to deregulate de oil. And it was not until March of 1979 that the president, under the law, that the president could do that um, without the permission of Congress. So as soon as that became legally possible, Carter started the deregulation of oil, and he did it in phases rather than all at once. And so two-thirds of it had been done when um, Reagan became president, and then Reagan accelerated the schedule that Carter had set and also did away with the allocation authorities, which I think Carter should have got rid of those two, but he didn't. So basically, most of the deregulation of crude oil was done in the period between March of 79 and before uh, Reagan took office, and then Reagan finished the job, and I give him credit for that, and, and as, as well as Reagan was also a strong supporter of the uh, Strategic Petroleum Reserve. Now in the accomplishments, maybe we'll go round robin on this, but um, if I was going to name number one, I would say the return of the Panama Canal Treaty. Uh, the reason for that is, uh, one, that it averted having to send troops to Panama. Two, it greatly Excuse undermined me. the influence. I was stationed in Panama, and there were tens of thousands of us there in the 60s. Right, but they're not there today. Um, and let, let me sort of elaborate on this because I think this is kind of a focal point where you have strong ideologies on both sides and, and a lot of things that were said at the time and now we have time to go back and look at, at what was correct. It was said that if we gave back the canal uh, by the Carter people, 
that we would enhance the prestige of the United States and Latin America, avert a war, and it would also uh, promote democracy because we would no longer be seen as a colonial power. And, and I think that turned out to be the case. And, and it really undermined the communists. Uh, from that point on, the communists didn't really have a point they could make uh, to stir people up in Latin America, and, and they, the wind was kind of sucked out of the communist movement. Now, the people who opposed the canal said we would lose access to the canal, and this would be bad for commerce. Well, the fact is just the opposite. Because the situation has been stabilized and the, and the Panamanians have brought in a strong management team, that uh, the ability of the canal has been expanded. The, there's been stories written in the paper in the last few months about how business now will be going up at the Savannah port, the Jacksonville, Florida port, because of the improvements that have been made in the, in the Panama Canal. If the United States had been trying to hang on to that power as an outside force, the willingness of private capital to come in and do those enhancements wouldn't, wouldn't have been there. So here's a place where, and it also made possible a lot of the work of the Carter Center. The, the Carter Center was able to go into Panama and Nicaragua and, and really promote free elections, sort of in a sense coasting on the wave of the goodwill that Carter had, had uh, listed. And, and I would also say, you know, I did mention the, the oil imports uh, going down 50% um, in two major energy packages, uh, but uh, rather than monopolize this discussion, I don't know if anybody else wants to. Egypt, Israel, arms limitation talks, no wars under his watch, human rights um, being uh, you know, put at the forefront of, of foreign policy. I think, there's, I think there's, there's some serious accomplishments there. And you can go to the museum and, and, see, and see them uh, listed out on the walls. I'd recommend that. Uh, uh, and there are, I was talking about things that we had left out of uh, uh, keeping faith. There are the sorts of things that are kind of boring like civil service reform and reorganization of government, but extremely important. And people that uh, study such issues say that it was a, a great achievement of the Carter administration. So there are just numerous uh, things uh, that uh, were passed during the Carter years, uh, foreign policy achievements, etc. There were things he didn't achieve. Yes, that's true too but numerous achievements. Well, let me come in on my uh, second uh, term here. One of the things, and one of the reasons I mentioned this book by the Libertarians is, is I've never fully understood the attacks on Carter from the conservative movement because uh, Jimmy Carter was a much more complex president than I think either the liberals or the conservatives are willing to admit. Um, 1980, which was Carter's last year in office, was the, the national debt uh, as a percentage of the gross domestic product was the lowest it has been in any year since World War II. It's never, it was never lower than that before that. It's never been lower than that since. Now, it would seem to me that that would be something that uh, conservatives would applaud. Uh, Carter, in, in many cases, when you read the documents, you find he was resistant to support many of the liberal initiatives because he caught, thought they cost too much. I mean, he, uh, if you want somebody who's spending your money is going to be frugal, Jimmy Carter's your man. I mean, he, that was the way it was as president, and I think the people at the Carter Center will tell you that's the way it is today. Uh, there aren't going to be too many wasted pennies. So, um, you know, as, a, as an achievement, I think if, if you say, well, oil imports were cut in half, and when he left office, the deficit was the lowest it had ever been before or since, this is, to me, not the kind of data that supports the, the idea that nothing got done. Uh, but 
yeah, I, I think we could debate this. Uh, you know, obviously there's a lot of criticisms that can be made. I think there's probably, we want to have other questions, but I think we could probably add to this. We'll go to this side of the room, and then we'll get back to the other side. Thank you. Is this working? I can uh, hear you. <laughs> okay. Uh, thanks for this forum. One thing that I've always wondered about uh, with President Carter, uh, someone mentioned earlier about his experience with nuclear energy, and I think that he was the captain or admiral of the first naval nuclear-powered submarine, something like that. But I, I don't recall from when he was president how nuclear energy fit into his uh, plan for energy independence. Okay. Um, that, no. That's an interesting question. He, he never rose to the rank of admiral in the Navy. He left uh, in 1953 when his father died and returned to planes, which interrupted his naval career. But the, the uh, pinnacle of his naval career was working with Admiral Rickover, who developed the light water reactors for um, the nuclear submarines. And that uh, light water reactor was then used to create uh, civilian electric power. The first civilian plant opened up in uh, 1957 in Pennsylvania, just shortly after the, uh, maybe four years after the submarine started operating. So Carter was key to the development of the light water reactor. He also, the major uh, nuclear accident that occurred in North America in the 50s was in Canada. Carter was part of the crew that went up into that contaminated site and fixed it. When he became president, uh, the, uh, he got strong support for the environmentalists. And if you watch his speech, within different drafts of the speech, the statements on nuclear power would change depending on whether Schlesinger had been uh, working on the speech, or Stu Eisenstadt had been working on the speech. So what he did was he, he um, called nuclear power a last resort, whereas I think his true feeling then and now is, is that nuclear power is a very viable uh, option that can be burned cleanly. But the reason that the nuclear industry got down on Jimmy Carter is he wouldn't support the breeder reactor. And the breeder reactor allows the uh, 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 the uranium to be reused over and over again, so you, you don't need any new fuel to have breeder reactors. And the nuclear uh, industry was, uh, well, nuclear scientists were very excited about this. But they're very, very expensive, and they're much more dangerous than the light water reactor, and the only reason you would build them was if there was a shortage of uranium. And there was not a shortage of uranium at the time, there's not a shortage of uranium now, so there was absolutely zero economic basis of building a breeder reactor. The industry stopped uh, supporting it. And, and interesting, the American Enterprise Institute, which back in the 70s did very credible economic uh, analysis, uh, uh, wrote an, an article uh, about, uh, by a very distinguished economist on how the breeder reactor was a boondoggle and the taxpayers shouldn't raise, waste their money on it. And the Congress finally killed it under Reagan uh, and, and a movement that was led by uh, uh, David Stockman, Newt Gingrich, and Trent Lott. But here's another thing where today's conservatives blast Jimmy Carter for ending the, the breeder reactor program when his rationale was it was too expensive and the people that agreed with him were Trent Lott, Newt Gingrich, and, and David Stockman. So it's, it's, it's an example of how these things get so meddled up and nobody's willing to kind of, to me, kind of deal with them in an honest way. Yeah, move over here. Um, did the U.S. under the Carter administration play a significant role in encouraging Iran, uh, Iraq to invade Iran? And if so, how would you evaluate that policy? 
Um, I have no knowledge uh, of that. Um, obviously, if that was the case, it would likely still be classified. Um, so uh, I, I, I do not know the answer to that question. Uh, basically, Iraq saw what happened was President Carter put very severe sanctions on Iran. Uh, mainly economic sanctions, but they had bought all this fancy military equipment under Nixon and Ford when the Shah was in power, and they needed parts. So these embargoes were, were really weakening uh, uh, Iran's ability to protect itself, and so Saddam Hussein uh, took advantage of this to, to invade, and it was actually somewhat, it, it hurt the United States because it cut oil supplies in the Middle East and added to this inflation problem, but it also put some pressure on the Iranians to try to settle the matter. So it, it was kind of a mix. I'm not sure the United States would have had a total motive to want to do this because, again, it, it, it ended up cost, uh, costing the world oil market several million barrels of oil a day. So it was not you know, politically good for the president at the time. But it's, it's one of those areas that I, I don't know that you all may have seen something I haven't seen. But. No, uh, I don't think President Carter was happy about the, uh, uh, the war, no. No, I think he was, uh, he was opposed to it. You know, what, again, how, I had one person call me up one time and berate me and say that Carter uh, was responsible for all the problems we were having today with Iraq and Iran, and he should have, you know, invaded both of them before he left office. And I said, you know, this would have been in the first time in history where we invaded two countries that were at war with each other. <laughs> Worked out well when we did. <laughs> uh, yeah, we'll go over here. Um, so we're hearing lots of Carter love here, and I'm a big fan, but what are the three biggest mistakes that Carter made or the biggest mistake that Carter made? Well, Do you have a good list? Start? <laughs> um, I, I, you know, because I focused on the speech, I'll, I'll bring it back to the speech. I do think that a, a, an unawareness about the growing power of the right um, and just how serious of a threat the right was starting to play um, and not paying significant attention to those in his administration, and they were pretty low down. Um, in, in the ranking order uh, to people who were saying, you've really got to pay attention to this stuff. This is going to hurt you. It's already hurting you, and you've got to do something about it. Um, I, you know, the biggest mistakes, I, I think the cabinet dismissal was an enormous mistake when he did it. And I think there were many people within the administration who knew it was an enormous mistake because what he had done was he had given this speech that focused and riveted Americans' attention on the energy crisis. And um, once he did the cabinet, uh, whatever you want to call it, purge is usually the term that's used, it focused attention back on Washington, D.C. It made it, it an inside-the-beltway gossip thing. And he took the momentum and the wind out of his own sails when I think he was in a much better position to do something about the energy crisis at that moment. So um, in the context of where I look at him, I think you know, there's clearly, there's clearly some, some significant mistakes. I, I'm not, I mean, uh, the, the Carter Love thing, um, I, I, I th I'm, I'm much more balanced probably on, on Carter. I think the biggest deficiency Carter had 
was he just wasn't that great at politics. Um, he was very astute, he, he had a moral vision, he had, I think, some great ideas. Um, I don't think he was very good at knowing, and I don't know if anybody would have known how to do this, at knowing how to deal with Congress and pushing things through. Um, he just, he, he, he did not have that skill base, and that was, that was clearly a mistake. President Carter usually will answer, if this question is given to him, that he should have sent more helicopters to, on the rescue mission for the hostages in Iran. Now, I might say maybe he shouldn't have sent the rescue mission. But anyway, that's President Carter's answer is more, more helicopters, because they had to abort. Um, I think the first thing I would mention was his uh, advisors uh, encouraged him to uh, take uh, speaking lessons and, and coaching, which most politicians do. And I think a lot of the, um, the job of a president is to use the bully pulpit of the White House and bring people around to your point of view. And uh, some of his advisors would say, you know, a blue shirt looks better on television. And, but he, 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 didn't, he, he, he was uh, trained as, as an engineer and he looked at things on the merits of it and, and perhaps didn't um, uh, act as much of a salesman. And I think when you're pushing a point of view, being a salesman is, is part of the job. Uh, interestingly enough, the speech that Kevin wrote about, he, he did uh, accept coaching. Mm -hmm. And if you look at it um, and compare it to the other speeches he gave, it's a lot more animated. And maybe that's one of the reasons the polls went up a, a little bit more as well. But um, ideally, uh, in office, you want to have made such a strong case for your issues that even if you're not in office, that those ideas persist. And I think across the board, that record is not as strong as it could be. Now, I think human rights got embedded in American policy uh, uh, so that it was pretty hard to totally overturn it. Um, another area was, uh, this is sort of a positive and a negative. Carter had a much better batting average with Congress than is perceived. If you look at it statistically, a lot of the legislation got through. But I think there was a lot of irritation with the institutional power that the Congress has compared with, say, the state legislature in Georgia. Uh, they have um, um, you know, much larger professional staffs. Uh, a lot of them had been working on legislation for a long time. And I think there was a lot more irritation with Congress than there, there needed to be, less sort of patting them on the back, doing a little favor uh, here and there. Now, that being said, boy, did he make the calls over to Congress and lobby for his legislation. And after the first year or two, that operation went, went pretty well. But, but I do think um, there was a little too much tension uh, looking at legislative relations, as, at least at first, as being sort of like they would have been in Georgia. But, but as I say, that operation became a very successful operation. So those are two things that I would mention. Uh, on the Iran situation, um, I think most of the literature now says once the hostages were taken, there wasn't a, a lot of things that Carter could have done differently. Um, I think if he'd been getting better advice, I wouldn't have made the trip to Iran in early uh, January of uh, 79, that would have been. Uh, that, 
78, yeah, 78, 78, which uh, made him appear to be kind of the bosom buddy of, of the Shah. Um, the, my view is the State Department was giving him pretty good advice um, in 1978 that the Shah was in trouble. The CIA and the National Security Council were advising the president that the Shah was not in trouble. So uh, perhaps there was getting a little too close to the Shah uh, than I would have thought advisable, but then there's a line of thought that he should have gone in and gotten the Shah, you know, supported the Shah stronger. So that, that depends on your point of view, but that, that was obviously a difficult situation. I don't think he had a lot of options once the prisoners were taken. Thanks. Good evening, gentlemen. My name is Mario Driver. I'm a political science graduate student at Clayton State with a concentration in international studies. Um, maybe Mr. Um, or Dr. Hockman, you can address this question. I was very interested in uh, Fidel Castro, and somewhat still is, and I heard you say basically that President Carter used humanitarian efforts to try to undermine communism. And I always wondered, how was the relationship between Fidel Castro and President Carter or American and Cuban diplomacy? That's a complicated issue, I have to say. <laughs> President Carter, when he came into office, wanted to move to have diplomatic relations with all countries of the world. And so he really wanted to have diplomatic relations with Cuba. He thought that it was better to talk to Cuba and be able to trade with Cuba, be able to have visitation, and that would strengthen the democratic movement in Cuba. But uh, the, the way things happened, uh, he wasn't able to move on that fast. And so there was a period during the administration when uh, Fidel Castro sent out uh, the, uh, uh, what we call the boat, boat people, the Mariel uh, boat people. And uh, he sent out people from his uh, mental institutions, criminals, etc., and sent them to the United States. And that did create a great problem for President Carter. So it was not the best relationship between President Carter and Fidel Castro. But President Carter is a forgiving person. And uh, he, in recent years, still believed that the United States needed to move toward a better relationship with Cuba. And so he led a delegation from the Carter Center at the invitation of Castro to, to Cuba. And if you go to the museum, you'll see pictures of President Carter and Castro and a baseball that both President Carter and Fidel Castro signed. Uh, so uh, we are trying to work with Cuba as the Carter Center and to improve relations there. Okay, and we're running short of time, so we have time for just one short question, please. Um, the uh, museum exhibit uh, seems to reinforce the notion that Carter was a very successful long-term policy president, undone perhaps by, it leaves out the rhetoric, the rhetorical issues that we've, you've referred to. Um, and also the, the press doesn't understand very well the combination, the southern populist combination of 
of uh, liberal on human rights, tightwad on economics, uh, or conservative on economics, if you prefer. Um, everything you've said this evening seems to reinforce that general conclusion. How should he have presented the long-term policies differently? How would he have, have, have reached the mainstream of American rhetoric uh, with a different approach? I guess I'm, I, I think he did reach the mainstream of America better than we perhaps think he did. The, the combination he had was the combination of cultural conservatism. Um, this is a president who derided divorce, the break apart of families, uh, derided the kind of the feeling of the disco me decade, um, and narcissism was one of the terms that he, he seemed to be beholden to. Um, and he combined that cultural conservatism with a view that government can't solve all of the problems in the energy world. Obviously, he was a big, he was into deregulation. But on the other hand, in 1979, he's talking about putting, putting you know, policy onto a war footing and talking about um, government doing a, a fair, playing a fairly big role. I actually don't think that that sort of combination is always completely out of the American mainstream. Um, I think there's a kind of commonsensical cultural conservatism that he had and an ability to wed that to what we might call, I don't think he was a liberal, but I think um, you know, a, a view of government that wasn't so derogatory as what conservatives had promised. I think he, I think in some ways, and you know, when, when people were asked about Carter, um, even at his lowest points, very few people would criticize him they would say, well, you know, he's not necessarily a good president. He's got some leadership deficits and things like that. But I think he's a fundamentally moral person. And I think in some ways that's an important thing to keep, keep, keep in mind, is that I do think he reached people on that sort of moral level um, much more than perhaps we, we kind of give him credit for. Okay, well, uh, let me just close here by thanking this great crowd uh, for being with us tonight, uh, great in terms of numbers and in terms of quality. Uh, remind you again to visit the new Jimmy Carter uh, Museum. That's uh, very exciting. And then the next uh, conversations at the Carter Center will explore 30 years of, uh, of China. Uh, and this will uh, take place on uh, Thursday, December 3rd from 7 to 8.30. Uh, panelists will include former President Jimmy Carter, uh, Vice President of the uh, Chinese People's Association of Friendship with Foreign Countries, Madam Li Sholin, uh, the president of the Chinese-U.S. People's Friendship Association, uh, Mr. Chu uh, Quan Di, and the Chinese uh, Council General in Houston, Madam Gao uh, Yanping. Uh, the reservations for this uh, will begin on uh, November 3rd, and you can go to www.cartercenter.org uh, and uh, book early, because this will obviously be a very popular uh, event. Uh, just a few more things. Uh, books will be on sale. Uh, for those who are interested in that. And then I would like to just personally thank uh, the Carter Center, both for making this opportunity available tonight and for the tremendous help that they've provided to the uh, museum as we have refurbished it. John Hardman, the CEO of the center, is here tonight. John, you want to wave? We'll thank John for all the work that the center does. And, and then there's someone that's always in, in the background. You notice that the crowds for the, these conversations keep growing, and uh, you, you get good notices when they're coming out. 
And uh, so there are people behind the scenes that are organizing this. And I, I would say that Debbie Hakes does a tremendous uh, job putting these conversations, events together. And she's always in the background and never takes any credit. But she's probably here someplace. So I think we should thank her as well. And uh, we hope to see you uh, at future events. Thank you for coming. This has been a podcast from the Carter Center, online at cartercenter.org.